This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The future is here. That's how they're introducing Denver Rights, a series of plans the city unveiled this week spanning the next 20 years and covering areas like transportation, parks, and affordable housing. How will this change the lives of people who live in Denver and who work and play in the city? We're going to hear from the man in charge, Mayor Michael Hancock. He joins us from the city and county building. Mayor, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be with you today. I'd like you to look ahead to 2038. With Denver Right, you're presenting a vision of what the city will look like. Take us there. How is daily life, my quality of life in Denver, different from today? Well, hopefully, Ryan, through this plan and uh, as we remain committed to it for the next 20 years, this comprehensive plan that blends kind of the values of our city, being an inclusive city, being a connected city, being a healthier city, will really guide us to make our mobility by 2038, 2040 much easier, more fluid. Um, Our commitment to equity and uh, affordable housing and being a city where people can live, work and play comfortably uh, being important. But also how we've carried over our infrastructure like commitment to parks and the fact that we want all residents within 10 minutes of a park, um, uh, uh, you know, present and helping us to do things like combat uh, climate change and to preserve and protect our our mature mature trees and and uh, that we have instituted uh, climate resistant landscaping. These are kind of the values we plan to carry over. But that and, and then the overriding that we are we are directing development uh, where we want it to go. And I think uh, that will help us to better manage the growth and better manage the overall future of our city going forward. All right. Lots to unpack there, which we will. But you're saying this will be a Denver easier to move around. I'll have a park close by if I don't already. And preferably, this will be a city that welcomes people of all incomes. Let's talk about that in particular. Throughout these plans, there are references to making Denver equitable and inclusive. Mm-hmm. So I want you to imagine a person of modest means, maybe a server, a school librarian. What does this plan do differently to make Denver equitable and inclusive? Well, I think one of the first things you can look at is how we look at it being a connected city and how ultimately transportation mobility lends itself to equity uh, almost more than a lot of the things we have here, but more importantly, directing the development to corridors or transit corridors around the city. I want you to step back and look at this plan. This is a comprehensive plan. It takes into consideration, for example, my family that would have grown up in the Five Points Park Hill area, uh, or my niece who lives in uh, you know Park Hill right off of Colorado Boulevard, where she walks out of her affordable housing facility there at uh, 40th Station and gets on a transit uh, to take her to her job at DIA. That's how we plan to have people, particularly those who live in, um, among uh, modest means, as you say, um, be able to traverse and be able to afford to live in Denver, Colorado. There is nothing more powerful and more equitable than to make sure that people have access to affordable transit while they are also living in their affordable housing. And that's a powerful formula for keeping people in our city. And it sounds like the city wants to be very specific, very intentional about where it directs that kind of development. I think there's yeah. a, l- a lot of concern in Denver right now about where growth will take place, mm-hmm. whether neighborhoods will retain their charm. At the same time that so many people are moving here and the idea of density, packing people in is a necessity. Talk to me about that balance. Absolutely. One of the real bonuses and I think powers of the Blueprint Denver program was that 
it really identify where we should be ushering um, development in the city of Denver. Today, looking back 20 years uh, after that plan was implemented, if there were seven projects, six of them went to areas of change versus areas of stability. And this plan, um, the Comprehensive Plan 2040, uh, really gives us the opportunity to continue those same values of moving, directing development where it should go. But it, it's the power of it is it blends. Like I said, it blends kind of the things necessary to really elevate one's quality of life in the city and give them real access to the, the amenities necessary to, to enjoy that quality of life, whether it's transit and other mobility options as well as parks. So the, under the same tenets and values that we carried forth, under Blueprint Denver 20 years ago, we're going to carry forth in this plan, and that is uh, direct or at least have the power, the ability to direct development where it should go in the city. Is that ghettoizing? Is that just saying all the people go here, not there? This neighborhood gets to stay the same and this one doesn't. No, because if you really look at the tenets of transit and mobility, what we're simply saying, and by the way, also by taking advantage of our transit corridors, which, by the way, exists all over the city, there are 21 of them. Uh, we're saying, you know, if you have the, the the belief and desire to live in a city, we should have the audacity to have a means for you to live in a city. And so these transit corridors are all over the city. And it's not, you know, concentrated in the old way that uh, uh, concentration of uh, affordable housing used to be. Those tenants are being washed away. We don't do that in Denver. It's not a value we carry forth. In fact, we just made a commitment, uh, and we have in front of city council now, to double down on our, or double our uh, commitment to affordable housing. And one of the things that we carried forward as a tenant, as a value, was we want to buy land all over the city so that we disperse and give opportunity for those who want to live in the city, but that we don't concentrate it. Indeed, you are updating the city's approach to affordable housing, increasing its annual housing fund from 15 to $30 million, at least that's the proposal, and that increase would come in part from a proposed hike in the marijuana sales tax. And in this plan, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, Denver, right? in this plan you talk a lot about valuing existing residents and limiting their displacement. This term displacement is just uh, thrown around a lot these days in Metro Denver because so many people are forced out of the city because of housing costs. Have you seen a city on earth that has successfully managed to stem the tide of displacement? I wonder if you have looked elsewhere for inspiration. Oh, absolutely. uh Uh-huh. Yeah, Ryan, you hit it right on the nail. And a great question, uh, by the way. Kudos to you, because it is a perception. Where are the best practices? Who's done this well? And as I attend conferences with mayors all over the country, the answer is no one has the silver bullet answer to this question. There are a lot of theories that are out there, and we are all trying different things. And so what you see us do and are doing in Denver, where we are doing our neighborhood equity stabilization uh, our uh, stabilization uh, team called NEST, where we're deploying kind of the various uh, toolbox of resources around the city where we identify uh, vulnerable neighborhoods. We're pulling different best practices from all over the country. It's a very complex issue, um, set of issues, and quite frankly, it's going to take a very a myriad of and variety of different tools that you have to bring to bear, depending on the neighborhood, depending on the, the, the demographics, the topography, depending on the historic and current challenges that they're facing on how you address it. And so to try to bring a cookie-cutter approach is the absolute wrong way to do it. You have to go in and assess, understand the uniqueness of certain neighborhoods and what challenges they're facing, and then bring to bear that tool chest of uh, 
of, 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 of resources and opportunities to that neighborhood. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock is my guest. We're talking about a vision for this city 20 years on. And you've mentioned transportation a lot, how we get around the city. You want that to be smoother in the decades to come. Currently, you estimate that 73% of people commuting to work get there by driving alone, and that only 13% carpool or take public transportation. So less than a fifth of people are carpooling or taking public transit. How do you shift those numbers? You shift it, uh, first of all, very slowly. (laughs) Uh, This is a culture uh, that we're trying to change. And culture is the most difficult thing to pull back. Every time you pull back a layer, you got something else you got to you got to deal with. And so it's another layer you must get through and you keep going, keep going until you begin to see the wholesale change. But so that's the first one is know that it's going to take time Two, you must commit to the resources. Last summer, I talked about $2 billion and how we got to fix our roads. And really what I talked about was um, we need to recognize that our roads are no longer just for automobiles, that people want to bike, people want to walk. And so we have to fix our sidewalk network. We must fix our bike network. And so the second uh, tenet, of course, is to make available the uh, infrastructure so people can have options uh, and that they feel safe in those options. And that includes convenience around transit and buses in the city of Denver. Uh, if I have to wait too long or it takes me too long to get there, I'm more likely just going to get in my car. So working with DA, working with RTD and making sure that uh, we have a fluid, efficient bus system, bus rapid transit system around major corridors like Colfax and Federal and Sheridan and other major corridors around the city, that we look at how we close first last mile gaps and, you know, from downtown to Cherry Creek, Cherry Creek to Capitol Hill. How do we close those where we don't have RTD service, but we create a convenient, affordable way in which to close those transit uh, gaps? Well, let, let, me, fun- let, me ask, yeah. let me ask a question of a question, which is, does the city create its own transit service separate from RTD? The idea has come up. Is it yeah. that RTD is in, insufficient for Denver's needs? Not insufficient. It's just that it's just not, uh, and maybe insufficient is the right word. I mean, it, it's just not the, you, you know, those are too small a corridors to, to move these big buses. So, so yes, there's a possibility the city might look at a different means, a different district um, overlaid with RTD to kind of figure out how we move people through this uh, first last mile gap. So as I said in the State of the City Address, we're talking to people and different partners and stakeholders about how we might potentially develop that kind of system in Denver. I'm all for it. Um, before his death was on timely death, Mayor Hogan and I had long conversations Mayor about Aurora. how Denver, yeah, Mayor of Aurora, former Mayor of Aurora, how we might uh, develop that kind of system uh, between our two cities and also how we might use it to close some of our gaps internal to our cities. And then I interrupted you, Mayor. I think you had a third point on how you get people out of their cars. Yeah, well, the other thing, transit. I'm sorry, Ryan, to interrupt you, but yeah, the next step, of course, it must be convenient and affordable um, because if it's, if you know, within five miles, people are willing to to use transit, but once you get outside of that, uh, now they, you start seeing kind of a lack of convenience for people. And so that's where the first last mile gap. But whatever we put in place, people must see the value of taking it, meaning that it's affordable and it gets me where I want to be and, and helps them not be stuck in, in traffic. If I get on a bus and I'm just I'm stuck as much in the bus as I am in my car, what value does that bring me? I might as well jump in my car and at least I have it available to me. So we've got to create those uh, dedicated lanes and opportunities for buses and other public transportation uh, conveyors. I want to ask you about how to pay for this in a moment, but you've mentioned parks that you mm-hmm. want people in close proximity to them. Uh, and this series of plans notes that 
the growth of parks in Denver has not kept up with the growth of Denver. Yeah. Uh, that is to say there's been about an 11% growth in the city in about the past year or two and about a 1% growth in parkland. How do you create more green space and at the same time do affordable housing? Th- this mm-hmm. strikes me as like the Boulder conundrum, which <laughs> is when you, when you create more green space, that is areas you can't build housing. Aren't these fundamentally at odds? No. I think that, uh, first of all, we need to get out of the notion that parks have to be, you know, 10, 20 acres um, in size. You know, pocket parks bring as much value to a neighborhood as, as uh, you know, city park size or, you know, wash park size. In fact, you go to Park Hill where I grew up, some of those pocket parks, we had more as much fun as we did if we went to wash park or we, if we went to city park. So you can take a two, three uh, acre piece of land and create uh, some park space as we're doing on Fairfax and Park Hill and create housing around it. And, uh, and and to give as much of a quality of life injection. In fact, we've done some of this in Westwood recently, and we've done it, we're going to do it in Sun Valley, where we're taking smaller swaps of land and we're creating parks, and that it, it immediately changes quality of life. At the same time, we're building affordable housing around those parks, and that's a powerful combination. Okay, it sounds like everybody gets a puppy in this scenario, <laughs> okay? So you get a park, you get affordable housing, you get transit, you get, uh, you know, a quality of life. You get a good job. How are you going to pay for this? And I want to note, I want to note, by the way, that Denver voters will be asked this year whether to raise the sales tax for parks. Just last November, voters passed a $937 million bond package to be used for repaving streets, renovations mm-hmm. of buildings, libraries, police stations and rec centers, for example. Uh, wh- where does the money come from for this vision you have? Well, I think it's uh, over. It's multiple sources, uh, first and foremost, and uh, it's also about uh, over the years coming that uh, these um, this master plan, this comprehensive plan, helps us helps any mayor in office, city council in place for the next twenty years to prioritize and set policy according to the plan, as we've done with Blueprint Denver. Those multiple sources can include, as you just mentioned, the the bonding capacity of the city, which we have, uh, I think, very smartly used over decades of helping us to build the city every 10 to 15 years, making a commitment. And the current bond that you just alluded to, the $937 million, for, you know, almost half of that is devoted to this mobility uh, infrastructure that we want to build out. We have about $146, $136 million dedicated to parks. Um, and so, and then you, we have a, a very aggressive effort on the state and local, uh, federal levels to bring home mobility infrastructure dollars. Uh, we are pushing the federal government to come with an infrastructure plan that uh, many cities across this country, states across this country, are in Washington working collaboratively to kind of convince Congress and the president it is time to create jobs and, and, and invest in our infrastructure at the t- same time improving all of our lives uh, in our cities and our states around the country. So it is a, it is a myriad of uh, sources that we'll use. It's over 20 years, um, but we started here in Denver with the ma- largest bond in our history. And if you might recall, Ryan, last summer I made a $2 billion commitment over the next 12 years on mobility, which means that is dictating how we will be structuring our budgetary decisions uh, starting, you know, last year, this year, and going forward. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Mayor Michael Hancock discussing Denver's vision for the next 20 years. I'll say that public comment is open through the end of October on these myriad plans. And we should note that Hancock is seeking a third term next year. 
Summer is nearly over for many school kids in Colorado. And as they head back to class, we're asking, are they returning to armed teachers, bulletproof backpacks, or other security changes? Some districts in the state have spent the summer improving safety. Chris Harms is director of Colorado's School Safety Resource Center. And welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. I want to say from the outset that our intention is not to broadcast security steps that then might make a school vulnerable. We want to inform here, see if there's room for some peace of mind, maybe, among parents. Uh, Having said that, what are some ways schools have been beefing up their security? Well, certainly, um, particularly in Colorado, since the Claire Davis Act was passed in 2015, schools have been very cognizant of watching out for students that might be at risk of hurting themselves or someone else. Let me say that Claire Davis was a student that was killed at Arapaho High School. That's correct. Uh, Okay, so this has to do with identifying potential threats. Seems like uh, a tough task, though. Well, it is, but there there are methods that can be used. The U.S. Department of Ed and the Secret Service have come out with guidelines um, since right after Columbine, actually. And um, many of our schools have been trained. Uh, the School Safety Resource Center probably did about 20 trainings in threat assessment before the Claire Davis School Safety Act was passed. We've done 100 since. 100 since. Yes. So districts are motivated to do this work. And without giving us, again, too much detail, what is it that you're training? Is it teachers, principals, security officers to look for? That's a really good question. Well, first of all, it's usually a team from the school made up of an administrator, oftentimes the person who has uh, responsibilities for discipline. If there's an SRO in the school, the SRO is part of the team. School resource officer. Oh, sorry, yes. And um, the, a mental health provider, If again, if there is one in, in the school. And um, anything that's off baseline for a particular student, or if they happen to be extremely interested in previous school shootings, they're gathering weapons. It could be any number of things that just tell people that there's something a little bit different happening with this student, and it's time to take a closer look and then put resources in place to stop a student from going down a trajectory of violence. So what I hear you saying is that many more schools and districts are engaging in this kind of work. Is there some evidence that that this has thwarted attacks? You say it's been going on for a long time. Well, we have school districts. Some of our largest school districts have done maybe 700 threat assessments in a school year and have had no incidents. So we definitely believe that this has keep kept everyone safer. What about changes to the physical environment in schools? Well, um, our legislature passed um, a bill that allows $30 million in grants to schools to increase their physical security. However, because the bill was just passed this last legislative session, the RFPs have not gone out yet, but RFPs I'm sure... Requests for proposals. Thank uh, you. Yes. Yeah, sure. There's the, the word salad of education right. here. Ah, okay. What did you say? $30 million? That's correct. Spread out over all of Colorado's districts. That doesn't sound like a lot of money. Well, unfortunately, um, I'm sure our districts would like more. And one of the caveats of the grant is they will need to have the schools that have a match will take 
first priority, which I think is frustrating for our rural schools because oftentimes they're the ones that need the grant money the most. I heard a statistic recently that in the United States, the average age of a school building is 45 years old. So you can imagine that they often don't have a a secure entryway. They probably don't have cameras and um, they could use retrofitting even at simple things like locks on their classroom doors. A lot of our schools, the teacher has to physically retrieve a key, step out into the hallway, and lock the door from outside. And you can imagine in the midst of a crisis, that can be uh, a daunting task. And as far as I know, across the country, we have not lost any students who have been locked down behind a locked door when there has been a shooter in the building. So I would love to see a lock on every classroom door that the teacher could just press a button from inside and secure their class. Are there any security measures beyond that that you think should be at the top of a district's list? Well, um, and I want to point out, by the way, for there's so many new people in Colorado, but this is a local control state. What that means is school districts have a lot of autonomy over their direction. And so I'm, I'm guessing that uh, the, the picture differs very much from district to district, rural or urban. That's that's absolutely true. I think most schools would prefer to have a way for people to enter the building and be checked out before they get beyond the um, initial doors. Uh, and a lot of our larger school districts have been able to do that. Our rural schools, not so much. The idea being that you check in at a front desk, but at that point you aren't in an area where you have access to students. Exactly, exactly. And um, people often ask, you know, well, what about metal detectors? But the research is really um, not conclusive that metal detectors are are that helpful. Um, And frankly, one of the things that is, is most helpful to keep a school safe is to have a positive school climate, to have, have school be a community where everyone feels like part of the community. Because you can imagine if a student feels like that is their school and they're part of the family of that school, then they're not going to resort to violence. I am surprised that the evidence doesn't show any dent from metal detectors. We think of them as essential at airports. Why wouldn't they be so in high schools? Well, um, a lot of reasons. Kids have found ways around it. Um, in, in many instances, no matter how much the um, perimeter of the building has been hardened, um, if somebody props open a door, then um, all your security goes right out the window. So um, they just haven't been that successful. And they often make students feel a lot less safe because they have to go through a metal detector. Speaking perhaps to something that gets in the way of the environment you were talking about creating. Last month, the Denver Post confirmed that six districts in Colorado allow in some fashion teachers to arm themselves. Does the state track how many are actually carrying? The state doesn't track that, again, as you uh, pointed out, because we are a local control state. um, The school districts can make that choice uh, themselves. Anecdotally, do you have any evidence that there are more of them carrying? Um, I don't have evidence of that. And when you say teachers are carrying, um, I'd like to clarify that it's probably not teachers in many of the cases. It may be um, someone else who's on the staff who doesn't have a classroom who who would have the availability to be um, wandering around the school, for instance. Um, and many of our schools, not only are there very strict guidelines in order to arm anyone in the building, they're only arming people who have former military or law enforcement experience. I want to talk about backpacks. 
some schools in other states are only allowing clear backpacks, while others have banned them altogether. And now you can even buy this. You may have heard about Guard Dog Security's popular bulletproof backpack. I'm here to show you the newest, most revolutionary, practical daily carry backpack that you may not be able to live without. Literally. The bulletproof backpack. I hear that and I think, what, 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 have, what have we come to? But could changing the way students have and use backpacks be part of the solution, do you think? Well, again, I would imagine that there's ways around even the bulletproof backpacks. What we find, because Colorado has the Safe to Tell program... It's a reporting program. If you're particularly concerned about a student or a threat, you can call it in. That's correct. And oftentimes, uh, if somebody sees a weapon um, in someone else's backpack or hears something um, that alerts them that there could be danger, then they report it through Safe to Tell. So um, I think that that's a highly effective way. This week, you attended a listening session hosted by the Federal Commission on School Safety. It's a task force created by President Trump after the Parkland shooting in February. At that meeting, state officials and law enforcement from across the Rocky Mountain region shared ways to improve school safety. Uh, any other states doing things that Colorado should be? Any bright ideas you heard? Well, I have to say, um, uh, Colorado is is ahead of the curve. Um, I guess that's the good news and the bad news. We've had to be ahead of the curve because of the shootings and other situations that have occurred here. Mm. Um, some of the other states talked about taking on the Safe to Tell, the anonymous reporting service that we already have in Colorado. Um, they're just gearing up to do threat assessment trainings in some of the other states. In fact, staff from the Colorado School Safety Resource Center have traveled to some of those other states that were at the meeting yesterday to train their staff in threat assessment because we are ahead of the curve when it comes to that. So to be honest, no, I didn't hear anything really new. Okay. Chris, thanks for being with us. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. She is Chris Harms, director of Colorado's School Safety Resource Center. Now, the story of an Air Force sergeant who died trying to save others during a firefight in Afghanistan. This month, Technical Sergeant John Chapman will receive the Medal of Honor, the country's top award for bravery, posthumously. He's the first airman to receive the medal since the Vietnam War. This month, his mother, Terry Chapman, will travel to Washington, D.C. for the awards ceremony. She lives in Colorado Springs. Hi, Terry. Hi. Thank you for inviting me to speak on your show. Absolutely. Thanks for being willing to talk. Tell us about the mission your son was on back in 2002 when he died. Well, as you know, he was an Air Force combat controller. Their main job is to, um, like, for this particular mission, to call in air support and direct strikes on the enemy. Their mission was supposed to go to the top of Takugar to set up an observation post. This is a mountain. Yes. And then there were several delays that that made their insert required to be on top of the mountain instead. And as they were coming in with their helicopter, they noticed signs of life. They were about to abort the mission when they came under heavy fire. Some rocket grenades hit the, hit the helicopter and damaged the hydraulics, and at the same time it caused Neil Roberts to fall out of the helicopter. Um, the helicopter at that time did not have enough power to lift to go back for Neil, so they did a controlled crash landing several miles away. Uh, that's when Johnny called in air support to, first of all, to look for Neil while they were down there, and then 
to fire on the enemy that was nearing the crash where they had landed. Uh, he then called in a second chopper, and after they landed, they went up to the mountain looking for, for Neil. Um, they landed under heavy fire, but they were able to get off the helicopter, and the, and the helicopter could depart. But immediately, it was like fire from three directions. So John assaulted the first machine gun and, and took out two of the enemy. Um, their, the gunfire was increasing, and a couple of the men were, were, were badly wounded. So then John went after a larger machine gun in another bunker so that the team could pull the wounded to safety. Um, the team saw John get hit, and he wasn't moving, so they assumed he was dead. So they continued to remove the wounded off the mountain. Actually, he was unconscious and severely wounded, but he came to and continued fighting several of the enemy for another hour or more. And then at that time, um, an Army Ranger quick reaction team was coming in, and he saw that they were going to, they were also under heavy fire and they were about to be shot down by rocket grenades. So he came out of his cover in order that he could lay down cover fire for the chopper. And it was while, while in this time that he was fatally shot. The helicopter was able to land, but, and then they were still under heavy fire that also killed an Air Force PJ and four more Army Rangers. And I might note that, that Jason Cunningham was the, was the PJ, the paramedic. He, he saved several lives before he was mortally wounded and continued to direct, you know, instruct them how to take care of them. It sounds like an incredibly chaotic situation. I think the Neil that you refer to was a, a seal. Robert. Was a seal, yes, is that was. right? Yeah. Yes. And so your son uh, died rescuing, trying to save the lives of others. Did, yes. did that surprise you? That No. Th- no? No, Johnny always put others before himself from a time he was just a little bitty guy. Give me an example of that from when he was a kid. Well, once in kindergarten, um, some a girl was picking on a, a, a shy little boy, and Johnny stepped in and made her stop. And then through the years, he continued to encourage this boy to join in things because he was very, very shy. And, you know, that was one of the things he did. Um, we had a neighbor who had a handicapped daughter who was about maybe 10 years older than John, and her only capabilities were to do, she could use her mouth to color, to pick up a crayon and color, and he would always take time to sit down and color with her before he'd even go out with his friends. He'd make his friends wait for him until he got done with her. Uh, There were several several stories that we we learned about after Johnny was killed that that people told us and wrote letters, and I I was surprised. I mean, not really surprised that Johnny did it, but just surprised that there were so many. So many, and he was so consistent about it. Your son was 36 when he died. He spent 17 years in the military. And I understand when he first joined, you convinced him not to take on a combat role, but I guess he eventually eventually changed his mind. Yeah, he got, he he was first stationed at at Lowry up in Aurora. And for the first four years or so, he sat behind a desk doing computer stuff. I don't know if it was with satellite communications or exactly what it was, but he finally said, Mom, I can't take this anymore. I can't sit behind a desk. I have to do something. So then he switched his career field and did the pipe, they call it the pipeline, which is like 18 months or more of, of tr- training to become a combat controller. How'd you so feel about that? Proud. Well, I was okay with it. You know, he, he told us, he told the whole family that how, how dangerous of a job it was, but it was, 
something he truly wanted, and he felt felt like he wanted he needed to do it, and he was really good at it. Are you a worrier? Um, at times, not always. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he would come and tell me several different things that would happen, like in some of the training things where the parachute didn't open, and he had to resort to the second second shoot, but. Oh, gosh. You know, he managed to get them open. That happened about two or three times. So that, you know, a mom to hear that was not too good news. No, I can't imagine. Uh, it took many years for your son to be recognized. Again, he died in 2002. You knew this medal was a possibility. Uh, how has it been to wait for so long for the recognition? Um, hectic. Uh, I was finally getting to the point, and I figured, well, it's never going to happen. And I was getting myself to accept that fact. But then all of a sudden things clicked and it came through. When did you learn about it? Uh, that it was a possibility probably about two years ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, How do you think the trip to Washington will be? I think it will be good. I'll get to see a lot of his teammates and I'll get to see John's, John's widow Val and the girls. So that'll be good. And my other, my uh, two of my other kids are going. My younger daughter's not not going to go. <clears throat> I, I've spoken over the years with with many gold star moms like yourself, and uh, I have found there to be a rather close knit community among parents who have lost children in war. Have you found mm-hmm. that community? Yes, I belong to the Pikes Peak chapter of the Gold Star Mothers. And there are well, it's probably at least thirty some of us in that group, and it's 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 a group that you can go to and discuss your feelings. You know, cause other people don't understand. They think that after several years have passed, that everything should be fine and dandy. But there are there are days like I could wake up in the morning and it's the happiest feeling ever, and then all of a sudden it's like a brick wall hits you and you break down. Thankfully, it's usually only for about a few minutes, but it, it you know it takes you by surprise. So, and I, th- I think it's especially because no parent expects their children to die before them. Thank you for being with us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Terry Chapman's son, Technical Sergeant John Chapman, died in combat in Afghanistan in 2002. This month, he'll posthumously receive the Medal of Honor. Chapman is the first airman to receive it since the Vietnam War. His mother will travel to Washington this month for the ceremony. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado has a reputation for being an outdoor recreational paradise, but for underprivileged children in Denver, that's not a world they always get to experience. Trips for Kids tries to change that. CPR's Vic Vela reports the nonprofit helps children travel roads they never thought they would. What's so special about riding a bike? You exercise your legs, you have fun, you know how to do new tricks. That's Ty Ariano. He's a nine-year-old kid I met as part of a recent Trips for Kids outing. He and his friends were gathering at the Sheridan Rec Center for an afternoon bike ride. It was Ty's first time being interviewed by a news reporter, and he's got some misconceptions. How much money do we get for this? You get $20,000 each. 
For this? For no. Yeah. <laughs> when the kids aren't being goofballs, they're learning how to ride a bike, some of them for the first time ever. Camilla Soto shared what she learned about knowing the rules. Listen to the parents uh-huh. and follow the leader. Okay, that's important stuff, right? Yeah, that's important. Mm-hmm. Trips for Kids offers a learn-to-earn program where young riders take bike maintenance and safety courses, and at the end they get to take home a bike, a helmet, and a lock. Volunteer Jacqueline Mitchell says that's a really cool thing for a kid. When I was a child, like my bike was like my everything. I rode my bike everywhere, every day. It was the only thing I could do, and I feel like it's very important to get kids outside and to be active. So I feel like a bike plays a big part in that. Trips for Kids is a national organization. Its Denver branch was started by a Montbello teacher about 14 years ago. And a number of his kids didn't have bikes, didn't have access to, to bikes. So he started collecting bikes, finding donated bikes, and getting them outside, outdoors, and to the trails. Wendy Stewart has been the executive director since 2015. The program now serves about 3,000 children each year. A lot of these kids are poor, and just learning about the outdoors and bike trails is a novel concept. 18-year-old Fernando Ibarra works part-time with the program. Yeah, it's funny because it's only like, what, 30 minutes away just to go to a ski resort or mountain bike trails. Well, those are even closer, but no one knows about them or anything. Trips for Kids is affiliated with Denver's Lucky Bikes Recyclery, a shop that offers a youth at work program. High school students learn how to fix bikes and get real-life work experience. This is a chain whip, and all you're doing is using this to hold it. Lucky Bikes also provides affordable donated used bikes for kids and does repairs on the cheap. 16-year-old Aldo Cruz is working on a bike now. Fill up the tires and then see if this one's flat or not, and then that's it. Cruz is Mexican-American and comes from a family of immigrants who don't have the resources to teach their kids about bikes or mountain trails. This program has been a game-changer in his young life. Well, it gets me out of my zone from, like, other problems or just keeps me focused. But it's mostly, like, distracting from, like, the situations that I have. If I have problems at home or school or other, other problems. Lucky Bikes Profits help to keep trips for kids going. The program also gets grants from Great Outdoors Colorado, which includes proceeds from lottery sales. But the program faces challenges. The bike shop is in a rough neighborhood, and Executive Director Wendy Stewart says it's been broken into several times. And everybody stops for a minute and says, why would anyone want to hurt a community bike shop that's a nonprofit? But if you really think about it, you know, people that are so desperate don't know what we do. But despite the setbacks, people who work with Trips for Kids are committed to what they're doing. That includes store manager Richard Tischler. Denver's a very uh, bike-centric city. You know, we have a lot of opportunity with people that have access to that stuff to pass it on to people that don't have access to that stuff. Tischler's a pro and can work in any shop he wants. But he says people like him have an obligation to help others who are less fortunate. I got this job because... It was too hard for me to put into words how important it is to ride. And I wanted everyone to have that opportunity um, because I think everyone deserves that. And Lucky Bikes and Trips for Kids are working to make sure Denver kids get to enjoy the ride. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. Beard tongue sounds more like a medical condition than a wildflower, but it's the most Colorado wildflower. 
according to Panayoti Kalaidis, senior curator at the Denver Botanic Gardens. He helped put together a new book that catalogs 1,200 of what he calls the most essential, beautiful, and unique wildflowers in our region. And, Pan, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be back. Let's not skip over beard tongue. You say it's a beautiful flower with an unfortunate name, but you have also said it's the most Colorado flower. Explain what you mean. I think that uh, what makes the beard tongue so so Colorado is that, that we have one of the largest concentrations of them. There's hundreds of species, and we have almost uh, 60 or 70. There's one other state that has a few more, but we won't talk about Utah. Okay. <laughs> Des- describe some of yeah. the beard tongues for us. Well, uh, I, anybody who uh, drives up in the mountains this time of year, June, July, August, the roadsides are often full of them. We often wonder, what do they do before road cuts? Because they, they're they so thick along the road cuts, and they can be um, usually these dazzling blues or lavenders or purples or sometimes scarlet and uh, even white. But they're very showy and they're like related to snapdragons as a consequence. And they're also being grown more and more in gardens. So This is an important question, which is how many of the wildflowers, say, in this guide could be grown in my garden, have seeds available? Well, a lot more. Uh, interestingly enough, this book uh, was written by the horticulturists at Denver Botanic Gardens and, and, and myself. And uh, as a consequence, uh, uh, there is there are occasional references to plants that are good for gardens. And 20 years ago, you would have found very few, but uh, gardening with natives has become more and more popular. And something certainly the Botanic Gardens has tried to support. How did the name Beard Tongue happen? Any idea? Well, I think uh, uh, somewhere along the line, uh, most of our common names uh, kind of evolve over time and sort of naturally. But sometimes uh, in the case of a lot of our American flowers, because we're such a young country, some botanist comes up with something and then it sticks. And uh, I don't think that's really the best name for the plant. So we need to people out there come up with – let's come up with some better names. Oh, you want to re- – okay. <laughs> Not necessarily for beard tongue. That's settled. Uh, okay. Alas, yeah, yeah. Does it look like a beard or a tongue? Well, the, it, it has a large staminode, which is like a stamen. Uh, and it usually – in many of them, they have uh, – uh, kind of some hairs on them. But it's not necessarily the first thing people notice. No. Yeah, what, what are some names you think do flowers justice? Oh, well, of course, all the daisies. You know, all the, I love daisy because it comes from day's eye. You know, the day's eye, the sun, and uh, like sunflowers. And, oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's lots of very poetic names uh, that have evolved over, over the millennia. I love paintbrush. Yeah. That's one of, one of my favorites, too. What are some of the showiest flowers that are native to Colorado? And I love this term showy when yeah. <laughs> like the flower is showing off. Well, they that's what kind of what they do. Uh I think the showiest flowers uh often are uh, like the daisies cuz this time of year if you drive around Colorado you're going to see a lot of different yellow daisies and uh, uh also uh uh, there are some very, you know, very sexy kinds of flowers like the orchids. Uh, those have a, a big following amongst the wildflower enthusiasts because they're rare. These are orchids native to the Rocky Mountains. Oh, yeah. We have dozens of native species of orchids. Most of them aren't terribly showy, but a few are spectacular. There's a little tiny fairy slipper. Now, how's that for a common name? There's a good name. <laughs> it uh, blooms usually in, in, in late May, June at high elevations, and it has a spectacular flower. It looks like something that would be on a, a little fairy's foot. A little fairy's foot. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about 
the new wildflowers of the Rocky Mountain region from the Denver Botanic Gardens. Paniotti Caladis joins us from the gardens to talk about some of Colorado's worst named and yet showiest wildflowers. And your Twitter handle seems to give away a little something. It's at Telesonics. That must pay homage to a plant you love. Well, it does, actually. It's a, it's a saxifrage that grows uh, pretty much only on, between Pikes Peak and Longs Peak. What was the word you used? A saxifrage. That's what what a, is that? That's a Latin name for a group of uh, high mountain plants that are found all over the world. And uh, in Latin, saxifraga means break a rock. Because they look like they're they always grow on rocks. Ah, and Telesonics is one of these. Descri- it is. Describe it. Well, it uh, has scalloped uh, beautiful leaves, very attractive, uh, lovely green leaves. And then it has short stems, maybe up to eight inches tall, and these piercing pink, hot rose pink flowers that are very, very showy. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, a Colorado endemic. Tell us about Little Red Elephant. Well, of course. Almost anybody who has children had better learn that one. That's one of okay. our most widespread uh, plants from the mountain wet areas, bogs, meadow, almost anywhere above six, seven, 8,000 feet where there's a wet meadow. You're apt to see these up to tree line. And they look exactly like a, a miniature elephant head. Is this one that could grow in a garden? Uh, it, if you did, if you ever succeeded in growing that in a garden, you could probably publish it in a major journal. Okay. Uh, it's never, strangely enough, that whole genus, which is an enormous genus, uh, uh, have proved to be almost impossible to grow. Speaking of wildflowers that look like their names, the shooting star. Tell me yeah, about the well, shooting star. That's that's a beauty, and uh, that's pretty widespread, all the way from the foothills all the way up to the high mountains, usually along streams. And uh, they've now put that in primula, primrose, but it used to be what it was first described because the petals uh, are pointing backwards, kind of like a, a well, like a shooting star. Mm. And uh, it's certainly something which I've loved from the time I was a little kid. You're saying it's been reclassified. There's oh, yes. The botanist. Yeah, the botanist. Well, was, of course, we talk about that in the, in the foreword. I do a little bit. But uh, 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 botany is a, is a living science, and so things are constantly being reviewed. And our understanding of them is deepening. It, it makes me wonder if you think we've identified all of the wildflower species that exist in the Rocky Mountain West, or there are still things to discover. Oh, no. Almost every, every year, year or so, new plants uh, – uh, that are new to science are found in the Rocky Mountains because uh, the Rocky Mountains are pretty eno- enormous range and, and highly highly uh, complex, and there really aren't that many botanists out there looking for them. And we tend to go to the same place again and again. So when somebody veers off to a new spot, uh, a new plant can be found. Have you discovered a new plant? Well, uh, in a manner of speaking, I found several, but. Uh, uh, it was way back in 1980. I got a call from a fellow, and he said, "There's a, a lady's tresses in Golden." And I, a lady's tress. Tress. It's a kind of an orchid. And I laughed, and I said, "Oh no, there's no lady tresses in orchid they, because they grow at high elevations." And he says, "No, no, there is." And I went, and sure enough, there were thousands of them. And it turned out, eventually, it was a new species. And I was kind of in the chain of, of discovery. But this is happening every year, you say. Oh, yeah. I would say almost every year. I think last year one or two were named, but not a huge number. But uh, uh, plants are being discovered ongoingly. Well, thank you for being with us. What would you name your plant if you discovered something? 
Any, any a, names a, in the world? Well, we, we don't have a, a name for a Colorado pine. Why not, why not Coloradoa? A Coloradoa? So. <laughs> that doesn't exist. Well, actually, just come to think of it, I think that there's a synonym, so we'll have to think of something else. Okay. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Panayote Kalaidis is Senior Curator and Director of Outreach at the Denver Botanic Gardens. They've recently published the book Wildflowers of the Rocky Mountain Region, which catalogs 1,200 plant species. The book is available at their brick and mortar now and online starting August 21st. You belong among the wildflowers. You belong in a boat out at sea. Sail away, kill off the hours. You belong somewhere you feel free. And that's our program for today. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek, and our producers include Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon. Michael Hughes, Matt Herz, and Shane Rumsey are our audio engineers. You can follow me on Twitter at Colorado Matters, at CPR Warner as well, and we're on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. It's been a showy show, hopefully. This is CPR News. 